Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, Trinity. It has been busy. Uh, no matter how light the crowd is, my commitment to you is to wear a bow tie every Sunday. What a joke. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. Uh, Torah just refers to the first five books of the Bible who were written by Moses. And if you grew up in the church, you know, you probably know a little bit about Exodus or Genesis and Exodus. But um, for most of the evangelical church, we have largely ignored uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this sermon series is our attempt to right the ship because though those sections of your Bible, although they're... um, mysterious, and at times complicated, they are just as much a part of the Bible as John 3.16, right? So, so far, we've looked at Leviticus, which, would, which helped us to understand how an unholy people can have and enter into a relationship of love with an unholy, uh, or with a holy God. And then, of course, um, two weeks ago, we began the book of Numbers, And we've learned that in the book of Numbers, it is a travel log of Israel as they wandered through the Sinai Peninsula. Life in the desert is where the good and the hard coexist, right? Sadly, in the desert, Israel often forgets who they are, and they fall into these self-destructive behaviors. And one of their main issues, as we're going to learn today, is that They don't know how to trust God. So allow me in this introduction to illustrate what's at stake. uh, I'm benefiting from an illustration that I heard Dr. Mike Higgins, he's a dean of students at Covenant Seminary, give, and I just uh, want to share it with you. So uh, many of you have seen the movie The Hunt for Red October, right? Um, It came out in 1990, so if there's a spoiler, get over it. It came out in 1990, all right? Uh, So the basic plot is that the Russians have developed this super stealth nuclear submarine, and the technology would allow the Russians to park right outside of Washington, D.C., undetected, and rain nukes on American cities. But a Russian submarine naval captain, Marco Ramius, played by the handsome Sean Connery, uh, he gets a conscience, and he and his crew decide to defect and hand over the submarine to the Americans. So a few Americans have to board the submarine, and in order to bring them in, uh, they board it in order to bring the sub in and just kind of finish this transaction. So the Americans board the sub. Now, three Americans... Uh, They're they're American naval captain Bart Mancuso, Jack Ryan, who is a CIA CIA analyst played by the young and skinny Alec Baldwin, uh, and Seaman Jones, just this young guy. He's a sonar specialist. They're on this boat, are on on the sub. As they're en route to the United States, uh, they're engaged by another Russian sub, and a torpedo is launched at them. Seaman Jones, a specialist, sonar specialist, says, Commander, the torpedo is at 1,000 meters and closing fast. Now, at this point, everyone takes their positions, and Jack Ryan sits too. Now, Jack Ryan, he's not in the Navy. He's simply an analyst that has studied this Russian Captain Ramius for years as a CIA analyst. So, nevertheless, he sits at one of the sub-positions, right? So Captain Marco Ramius looks at Jack Ryan, and he orders, set the course heading of the sub 
to 315. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not in the Navy. I'm just an analyst. He says, just do it, Ramius barks. Now at this, the American commander, Bart Mancuso, he's alarmed. He says, don't do that. And Jack Ryan asks why. He says, Mancuso says, you're heading straight into the path of the torpedo. Now, Seaman Jones is this far. He's piping up, sir, 500 meters and closing really, really fast. Captain Ramius repeats, set it for 315. Now, Jack Ryan, he looks at the American subcommander, and then he looks at the Russian naval com- captain, and he sets the course for 315. The submarine turns right into the torpedo. The torpedo hits the hull of the sub, and it disintegrates with no explosion. Jack Ryan, he's, he's puzzled. Like, what, what happened? Combat tactics, says Mancuso with relief. The captain knew that if he turned into the torpedo, he would close the distance and hit the torpedo before the torpedo armed itself. Now, the question is, why would a U.S. CIA analyst trust a Russian naval captain instead of a U.S. captain? And here's the answer. As an analyst that was an expert on Marco Ramius, Jack Ryan felt like he knew him, right? He studied this man for years. Like he really knew Marco Ramius. So much so that he was willing to trust him to do something that seemed suicidal. That, that kind of trust is at the heart of what we're going to learn today in our text in Numbers 13. So today we're learning that story of the 12 spies who went on a mission to collect intelligence in the promised land. And when these 12 spies returned, 10 spies were rethinking God's promises and God's words. And two spies were even more sure that God knew what he was doing. This story, Trinity, is not just about them. Through this ancient story, we're going to learn about two different ways, two strands of trust. Trust in God or trust in self. So before we get to any more, let's turn our attention to God's word and we're going to read it together. So in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? We're in Numbers chapter 13. It's in your bulletin or also, of course, in your Bibles. Hear now the word of God. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes." Jump with me now to verse 25, if you would. And the end of the 40 day, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us, It flows with milk and honey, 
and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Melekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spite out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are, light, are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. Now, many of you uh, know this about me, but I, um, I'm, a Texan, I'm a Texan kid. I, I look like I'm from Puerto Rico. I'm a Texan kid. And, um, and if you don't know that about me, you can detect a little bit of hick in my voice every once in a while. Uh, I love Texas uh, because Texans are like nuts, like they're nuts. Uh, I was at the General Assembly, was in Dallas this week, and as soon as I got off the plane in the terminal, I saw this guy, he was wearing a PETA shirt, PETA, PETA. and then in the fine print, it said, people enjoying tasty animals, and I thought, that is such a Texan shirt, right? Uh, it's, this is like such a Texas thing to say. Um, when I, I left Texas when I was 18 years old, but I still have this like Texas blood in me. Uh, you've probably heard the, the saying, right? You can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. Well, I could actually say the same thing about the people of Israel, right? You can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel. See, Egypt was a place where they were slaves. They lived there for 400 years, and the Israelites uh, that we're reading about in our story, Numbers 13, is the very first generation who came out of slavery. So these guys still spoke with Egyptian accents, you see. They were learning how to give up their Egyptian gods and learning to trust the one true God. But they still trusted in God the same way that they trusted in their Egyptian gods. See, Egyptian gods were not real. They didn't even exist. So trust in Egyptian gods was really just a pretext for mistrust and self-trust. And, and, and let me show you how this is illustrated in our text this morning. So in our text, it begins in verse 1, you'll see there, with God ordering Moses to send out a representative from each tribe to go on a reconnaissance mission. Now notice that God in verse 1 says what he's doing. He says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This land will be given to Israel. It is promised. This mission is not to decide if the land will be theirs. No, God has already given this land. So the 12 spies go to collect intel, and there are kind of two areas of focus. They're there to report on the quality of the land, and then they're to report on uh, the quality of the people who live in the land. Now remember, the promised land, this is like prime real estate, it is not vacant. 
it is filled with some pretty rough and tough people. So the spies go, and when they return, there's this mixed report, right? Ten of the spies speak as if God's promises to give them the promised land came out of the mouth of their Egyptian deities, right? And look, look in verse 27, the first ten spies give the report on the land. It is good. Milk and honey. No one was lactose intolerant back then, so this is great, right? Uh, it, that just means that the land is good for both farming and ranching, right? The land was everything that God said it would be. But then in verse 28, they give the second part of the report about the occupiers. They say, listen, everyone, the land is good, but it's not that good, right? The people who live in the land, they lift a lot of weights. They're big, and they're really good at building thick walls. If we go in there, we are all going to get slaughtered, right? When they compared the muscles and the fortifications of the, pro- of the people in the promised land over against their own, they concluded, we don't have the chops to go up against these guys. Look there in verse 31. They say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger uh, than we are. Now, what's happening here? What's happening here? Why is there such mistrust? I mean, why, why would they speak like this? It's because they trust God like they trust their Egyptian deities. They are accustomed to trusting their Egyptian gods. And what that really meant was that they were used to trusting in themselves. So in verse 27, the first words out of their mouth to Moses is, We came to the land which you sent us. Now listen, that's a really ominous thing to say. I mean, are these guys crazy? Moses didn't send them. Moses doesn't have any land to give. God sent them. That's how this whole story in verse 1 begins. God sends. But do you know why they really didn't have any courage? It's because although they said that they believed in God, who they really believed in was themselves. And because that is true, when it came time to be courageous... They couldn't get there. In fact, it made them anxious. They thought the only person who could be trusted to take care of number one is themselves, right? Now, there's also a second aspect that leads them to such mistrust. They had what I'll call a therapeutic vision of God. See, they thought that the Lord was like the Egyptian gods in that they believed that the whole point of having gods was so that the people could do some work, for their deity, and that the deity, in return, would make their life easy. But listen, God never said that following him would be a piece of cake. The whole point of a recon mission was not to decide if they could do a mission, but to make a plan on how to obey, because it would be pretty challenging. God is not trying to spare us from hard things. Now, If you're not seeing the parallel with the story in your life, you're not listening closely, right? See, many of us believe in God. We believe in Jesus, but do you know who we trust in? We trust in ourselves. And we think that God exists to make our life easy. And so when our life is not easy, it reinforces the narrative that we have to trust ourselves and look out for number one because God won't do it. And do you know why this is so tragic? Because we are terrible gods. When we put our trust in ourselves, two things happen. First, 
just like the 10 spies, we become paralyzed and riddled with anxiety. We're, we're chronically anxious. Your whole life turns into this exercise of self-protection. And number two, what's tragic is you never do anything courageous or take risks. Nothing great in this world happens when your life is about self-preservation. You will be superstitious with God, maybe even mutinous when you're just self-preserving. When God calls you to do something hard, something outside of your comfort zone, you will rationalize according to your own limited reconnaissance and intelligence, and you will opt out against really following God. That's what will happen. Listen, God's commands and promises, they weren't blind. He called them to do recon, but the recon was not there to determine whether or not to obey God. Rather, it was so that they would accompany God into the hard things with skill. Christians have always been known for walking with God into hard things. We've always been known for accomplishing hard and courageous things for God's glory. And and the confidence of faithful Christians in history was not in their own skill. It was always in God. What does your life reveal about who you trust? Right? I mean, I know that you believe in Jesus, but have you placed your trust in him? Or have you placed your trust in number one? I've done more wrong things in my life than right things. But of the few right things I have done, none of them have been easy. And they are the things that I am most proud of. That's where I really see God working. It's in those moments that my trust in God is most nourished. I am saddened that many modern Christians have adopted a certain therapeutic vision of God such that when hard things happen, we think God was the problem all along. He's the problem, right? We start a mutiny against God, and our Christian walks are so blah because of it. They're so blah, so status quo. Let's let's let go of that, those false God intuitions. Let's let go of our self-trust. We will think about this a little bit more as we go, but let's continue in our study. So we looked at the mistrust or the self-trust of the ten spies. Let's turn our attention now to the two spies of Joshua and Caleb who trusted in the Lord. Um, I went to the Air Force Academy for my undergraduate. When I first arrived to the academy for basic cadet training, I was given this small book called Contrails. Inside this book is a bunch of information that every duly, that's what we call freshmen there, every duly is required to uh, memorize. They have to memorize almost every word in that book. So of this massive body of information, there are like tons of quotes. And one of the shorter quotes that I memorized was by General George C. Marshall. And he says this. You might have heard this before. He says, there is no limit to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I like that quote. I like that quote. It's trying to say... Don't just do things to get glory. Now, in this story that we're studying today, it takes that sentiment even further. Essentially, we see a couple of guys say, oh, we absolutely care about who gets the glory, but it's definitely not us. We're going to do something undeniably crazy so as to ensure that only God gets the glory. 
We're going to attempt the impossible, and everyone will say, oh, the God of Israel is the only true God, right? See, after the 10 spies gave their report, the people got into this frenzy, and I mean like a frenzy. In the very next chapter, chapter 14, uh, we even see more what happens. People end up saying, hey, Moses, I'm done. Those chains in Egypt, they look good. Let's go back there, right? These people lost their minds after this report. But after that initial report, in verse 30, Caleb, on behalf of Caleb and Joshua, he takes the mic, right? Now, now notice, Caleb did not deny or try to minimize the reality of the toughness of the occupiers in the promised land. He didn't say, he didn't say, oh, come on, guys, it's not that big of a deal. Rather, what he said is, yup, it's bad. Let's totally go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to come overcome it, verse 30, right? It is significant that they did, did not deny the reports. In other words, Israel... Israel's taking of the promised land will have nothing to do with the strength of their own army. No one's going to remember the Israeli army. What will people say? They will say, this is so impossible that God has to be the one who does it. Only he will get the credit. So while everyone else was freaking out, Caleb and Joshua, they thought to themselves, this is so hopeful. God is going to get so much credit. In the words of the French Marshal Ferdinand Foch, a uh, famous general from World War I, he says, There are no hopeless situations. There are only men and women who have grown hopeless about them. See, these two spies did not give in to hopelessness. Why? Because they were never trusting in themselves to begin with. That, that wasn't their starting point. Now, there's one more feature that really alerted uh, Caleb and Joshua to God's participation. So part of their intelligence collecting mission included doing an assessment on the lay of the land. Look there in verse 17. They are told to evaluate if the people are strong or weak, or if they're few or many, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds. Now think about this. Think about this with me for a second. Israel lived in tents. And, uh, and, the, tent, and the tent spies were hoping to see that the rest of the world lived in tents too, Right? But what they countered when they got there were walls around cities that were so thick that two chariots side by side could ride on top of them at the same time. That's like what we're going to see later in Jericho in the book of Joshua. So while the ten spies, they freak out, Caleb and Joshua, they look at these walls and they're totally encouraged. What? Why? Why are they so encouraged? Listen, if you have thick walls... It's not because you're secure. It's because you are totally insecure with your gods. Your gods cannot be relied upon. Do you you follow the logic? The narrative here is not the comparison in trust in competing armies. It is a comparison of trust in competing gods. That's how the story works. Israel lived in tents, totally exposed, but they were safe and secure because their God protected them. They didn't need walls. But the big bullies who lift a lot of weights, they need all the protection they can get because their gods would not pull through for them. They needed to take matters into their own hands. Caleb and Joshua, they saw the walls. These were really seemingly impossible obstacles, and they grew even more confident, right? Hey, Trinity, are you listening? Like, are you listening? Like... 
This has everything to do with us. We are not interested in being a church that keeps the status quo so that we can live respectable and comfortable lives all baptized with religion, right? We are begging the Lord to do something in Puerto Rico that is so big that all of us will sit back and say, that sounds impossible. We could never do that. We could never touch every single English speaker in Puerto Rico with the gospel, We could never create campaigns so expansive that human sex trafficking is completely eradicated in Puerto Rico. We could never take an entire squatter community with patterns of cyclical poverty and transform it into a community of social and economic flourishing. We could never take a completely broken public school system that operates in a language that's not our own and turn it into the single most educationally productive school in Puerto Rico. None of this is even remotely possible. Let's totally do it. So that there's like no doubt that God is our Lord working in our midst. We don't need walls. We just need the Lord. Let me just summarize and conclude. And if you're new here, those things I just talked about, those are things we have started. And we're just trusting the Lord for. We'd love you to be a part of that. Let me just conclude. So this ancient story provides us this sort of case study of how to properly trust. So Israel trusted God in the same way that they trusted their Egyptian gods. And since Egyptian gods were not real, it meant that they trusted themselves. But there were these two spies, Caleb and Joshua. They were different. They did trust in the one true God. They didn't expect God to make things easy in their life. That's not the point. In fact, they expected the odds to be impossible. They knew there would be costs. But when they saw the walls, they saw insecurity behind the muscles of those big occupiers. And when they looked at their own tents, they thought, clearly God is for us. Let's do this. There are two ways of trusting. Trusting in the Lord or trusting in yourself. Everyone trusts something. My deepest prayer for this community for my own children, is that you would relinquish trust in yourself. Shed the anxiety. Rest in God's promises like Israel was called to do. Don't explode with mutiny every time something is hard. God is not protecting us from hard things. Rather, he's doing great things through it. That's how he's always done things. He's changed the whole world that way. You don't believe me? Can I remind you of your faith? God the Father had given God the Son, Jesus, marching orders for an impossible mission. He was to live and die on a cross for his people. This was so hard that he would bleed, uh, he would sweat blood out of his pores the night he was crucified. He trusted his father perfectly, and he was hung on a cross. He died. Should he not have trusted his father? He trusted. It was hard. There was a cost. But his death brought about a victory of such cosmic proportions that we could all spend all of eternity talking about it, and even still, we would never get to the end of the matter. With trust, through death, God brought about an impossible victory. That's the whole gospel narrative. And you and I are beneficiaries 
Jesus, you guys, has given us a track record of faithfulness. I want you to know this Jesus. I mean, meditate on him. Read about him through his word. Pray to him. Allow your imagination to be baptized by, the, by his beauty. Because one day, someone's going to holler at you. Hey, torpedo's coming. 500 meters and closing. It's coming in fast. And Jesus will say, set the course for 315. And it will feel suicidal. Your culture will say you are crazy. But oh goodness, you will set it for 315 and see the impossible happen. And God will do marvelous things in and through you and through this humble community. Amen? Amen.